This is our sixth and final tape in the Galatians series, and this tape corresponds to our Life for Today tape number 107. I teach from uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15 through Galatians 6, 18. On my last tape, I quit in the middle of verse 16. I want to go back and just say a few more things about that, and then we will continue on. Real quickly, let me just once again remind you the context of this. Of course, the whole book of Galatians is probably Paul's strongest statement on the subject of grace. Whereas Romans might be his most eloquent, uh, Galatians is definitely his strongest. And he said some things that were just, I mean, nearly harsh, brutal to these uh, Galatians, but it's because he loved them and he was trying to turn them from what he considered to be a damnable heresy the heresy that you had to mix works with law. And in the fifth chapter, he was kind of concluding some things and basically saying that if you were trusting in the law, and he was specifically talking about the act of circumcision, I've made a point of saying that even though circumcision isn't an issue with most people today, the same principle that Paul is talking about is an issue. Today, people use water baptism, uh, church membership, uh, different things like holiness, degrees of holiness, etc. And they say you've got to do these things plus believe on Jesus as your Savior. It's the same thing that Paul would have uh, was dealing with here. And he said some very harsh things, that if any person is still trusting in anything other than Christ, then the Christ is made of none effect unto them. And he has said some very, very strong statements. Now, this does not mean that Paul is advocating Living in sin, because he brought up this point, he says that if you have been, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And then he said in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one another. So he is saying that, yes, there are reasons to live holy, but the reason is not for acceptance with God. That is totally on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus. But if we go live in sin, specifically strife with other people, we're going to reap the consequences of it. Sin still has consequences outside of God's judgment. Even though God's judgment was placed upon Jesus, sin will still open up a door to Satan and open up a door to Satan's agents, other people, into your life. And so you cannot live in sin. And so in verse 16, this is where we were on our last tape, he said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So how do you break the dominion of sin? Maybe the reason for living holy has changed. We don't do it anymore to gain God's favor, but we still need to live holy so that Satan won't have access to us. So how is it that we live holy? Well, verse 16 is a radical verse, and I spent some time last tape talking about this. I won't go into great detail, but he basically says things here exactly opposite the way most people seek to overcome the power and the influence of sin in their life. He said here, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He did not say that if you will deny the flesh, you will walk in the spirit. Now, that is a huge difference. Most people think that if they can break the dominion of the flesh, then the Spirit will come. 
And yet this verse is saying just the opposite. Walk in the Spirit, and then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If any person is trying to wait until they have overcome sin, until they've overcome temptations and carnality in their life, and then the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come into their life, you're going to be waiting forever. If you could break the dominion of the flesh over you by yourself... You wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. You need to receive the Holy Spirit right in the midst of your problems. You need to receive the Spirit flowing through you and leading you before you get cleaned up. Because you cannot clean yourself. You have to have the Spirit flowing in you to be clean. I use that example about you can't shovel the darkness out of the room. What you do is turn on the light and the light dispels the darkness. It's the same thing with the flesh. You cannot get rid of the flesh, and then the power of the Spirit will come. Most people believe that there is an increased flow of the Spirit of God in your life as you get rid of fleshly things and overcome the flesh. As the flesh is overcome, then the Spirit comes and takes its place. Actually, it's just the opposite. As the Spirit comes, then the flesh is driven out. And that is what this verse is saying. And there is a huge difference in those two approaches. Boy, if you haven't got that, I ask you to pray about it and let the Lord speak this to you because this is the difference between what I believe one of the major differences between true Christianity and just false religion. Religion teaches a standard of holiness, and they'll even go to the Bible and proclaim the standard that the Bible proclaims as far as conduct. But basically they're telling you, do these things, and then when you do them, God will accept you. Whereas the true message of the Bible is saying that believe by faith that God has accepted you, and then this is the standard that you will find yourself fulfilling. You will see the Holy Spirit leading you, and this is the way that it will be. And this is the way you can discern if a person is truly a born-again believer or not, is by this standard. Most people are trying to meet the standard instead of accepting salvation as a gift. Boy, that is a powerful, powerful truth. In verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. This word lust right here, according to the New American Heritage Dictionary, it just means an overwhelming craving. We've nearly totally... Uh, use this word to describe some unlawful or some perversion of sexual desire. And yet, it cannot always mean that, because in this very verse it says that the spirit lusts against the flesh. And we know that this isn't talking about some sensual sexual passion or desire. The word lust here is just talking about an overwhelming, overpowering Desire. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates this as the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And so this is just saying that the spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other in the very nature. The flesh desires the things that satisfy self. This plays right into Satan. Satan uses that. So basically, the flesh desires the things that are of the devil, and the spirit desires the things that are of God. And it's always this way. And so if a person truly starts yielding to the Spirit and seeking to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit dominate them, that automatically means that the power and the influence, the dominion of the flesh is decreased in their life. 
Because see, in the very last part of this verse, verse 17, it says, you cannot do the things that you would. This is exactly what the Lord taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where it says that you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hold the one and hate the other, or you'll hold, uh, serve the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you just cannot effectively serve the Spirit and the flesh at the same time. If a person is seeking after God and seeking the things of the Spirit of God, then it automatically diminishes this power and dominion of the flesh in your life. And see, people have tried to reject the flesh and resist the flesh, hoping that the Holy Spirit would just come and fill the void. But this scripture is saying just the opposite. The way to do it is right in the midst of all of your problems. See, this plays perfectly into the grace that Paul has been proclaiming throughout this entire book of Galatians. The legalists were saying, get right, live holy, and then God will accept you. Then God will flow in your life. Then power will come. Paul is saying just the opposite. Know that grace proclaims that you can have a relationship with God, not based on your holiness, not based on your performance, just as a gift. And then as that happens, you can begin to start walking in the Spirit, and you can break this dominion of the flesh. You can literally decrease, diminish its power and influence over your life. See, there are two opposite ways to obtain right standing with God. Now, you may have the legalist and the Christian living by the same standards. Did you know the legalists were saying that you shouldn't go out and kill? Well, so were Christians saying that. They were preaching love. The legalists are saying you shouldn't steal. Well, that's exactly what the Christians were saying. And on and on you could go. There's a lot of parallels. True Christianity that preaches salvation by grace through faith is not preaching that you just go live in sin. But there is a totally different reason for living holy. We live holy because we've already been accepted. Our nature has been changed. And now we don't want to live in any way except the ways that glorify God. The legalist, the religionist, is a person who is trying to do all of these things to earn God's favor. They aren't trusting in his grace. They aren't going through a savior. They might give lip service to that, but the truth is their faith, their trust is in themselves and in how holy they've been. And God will not accept a person like that. They may be better than I am, but they are not holy enough to be accepted on their own. They need a Savior. So Paul here is just bringing out this point that if you would just seek the Lord, if you would put him first in your life, if you would by faith receive the grace of God and let the Holy Spirit start working in your life, that would break the dominion of the flesh. And this is by far the superior way to walk with the Lord. I tell you, a person who is trying to overcome everything, and when they get clean enough, then God is going to flow through them. That person is going to be a disappointed person. They're going to be a frustrated person. They're actually going to turn into a critical, mean person because they believe that that's the way that God is, giving us exactly what we deserve, and therefore they wind up reproducing that in relationships to others. But a person who truly understands the grace of God and they just by faith receive it and start walking in the Spirit, letting the Spirit control and dominate them, 
they'll find out that as they do that and, and just by grace and faith believe that God loves them and accepts them and begins to start praising him and, and living a life like that, they'll find out that the dominion of the flesh will be broken in their life. You cannot serve God and serve the devil at the same time. You cannot do the things that you would. If you are walking in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's exactly what these verses are saying. It did not say that if you are not in the flesh, you will be in the Spirit. That's not so. Because, see, a person can can uh, get rid of some of the actions of the flesh. In other words, if if you just say that being in the flesh is doing X number of things... And if I quit doing these things, then I'll automatically be in, in the, be in the Spirit. If that was so, then the scribes and the Pharisees would have been in the Spirit. They would have been under the control of the Spirit. And yet Jesus revealed that wasn't so. He didn't criticize their actions. Their actions were good. They were doing great things. They were paying tithes of mint, anise, and cumin. They prayed. They fasted. They did all of these religious works. But their motive was wrong. In other words, you can control your actions. You can get a person through religion to live up to some standard of holiness, and yet in their heart there can still be this corruption. Jesus said that they're like whited sepulchers. They appeared good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. And so there was corruption on the inside. You cannot change the heart through actions, but... You, if you change the heart by just receiving the gift of salvation, the heart will change your actions. Out of the heart proceed the issues of life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And on and on the scriptures go. So the scripture teaches change from the inside out. Religion teaches change from the outside in. You change the outside, then the inside will change as a result. These scriptures are teaching exactly the opposite. In verse 18, he says, But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now notice in context, in verse 16, he said, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Then in verse 18, he says, But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. He's continuing the same thought. And I believe that what this is saying is that being led of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, he's describing the same thing. It's just different terminology for the same thing. Basically, it's just talking about being under the control of the Spirit. If we are letting the Spirit of God control us, then we are not under the law. How do you let the Spirit of God control us? Well, I've already dealt with this. I won't go back into detail on it. But the Word of God and the Spirit of God are the same thing. Jesus said in John 6:63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. God's Word and His Spirit agree perfectly. So when a person is seeking to be in the Spirit, then they have to be doing what the Word of God says. A person who is being led of the Spirit is a person who is letting the Word of God, the truths, the realities in God's Word, dominate and control, dictate their life. For instance, the Word of God says that you should love your neighbor as yourself. A person who is in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is a person that is going to love their neighbor. And there's a, you know, we could make a thousand applications of this, but that means that you are concerned about them, you're trying to bless them and help them. A person who is only religious could actually 
uh, go through the motions, pray an hour a day, do all of these things, appear in church, wear their robes, get all of the recognition, and, you know, do all of the religious things, and yet, yet treat their neighbor like trash and think that they are in the Spirit. Well, you aren't in the Spirit if you aren't doing what the revealed Word of God says. If you know what God's Word says and if you aren't abiding by it, you aren't in the Spirit. Being led of the Spirit is walking in what God has told us in the Word of God to uh, the degree that we understand it and that we know it. And when you do that, this scripture says you are not under the law. There is no law in the Word of God that would go contrary to being led by the Spirit. When a person is being led by the Spirit, when a person is letting the Word of God dominate them, they will naturally fulfill all of the righteousness of the law. Now, they may not fulfill every single commandment of the law because some of the law has been fulfilled and it no longer applies, such as for the Gentile believer. We don't need to observe the feast days, such as the day of Pentecost, uh, the uh, Passover meal, the Feast of Tabernacles, and on and on. There is no reason we have to observe that. That was only for the Jews. It was never intended for the Gentiles. So I may not fulfill that exact specific obligations and the commands that went along with it. But I am, if I'm walking in the Word of God, if I'm being led of the Spirit, I will fulfill everything that those feast days typified. For instance, the Passover, it makes it clear in the Word of God that that was typical of the born-again experience where God literally caused judgment to pass over us and he placed it upon the Lamb, Jesus, for us. The blood has been shed over, spread over us. And when he sees the blood, he passes over us. See, I am living in the Passover. I'm not just celebrating a meal and going through that. So I may not fulfill every exact detail of the law. I may wear garments that are not just 100% cotton or 100% wool like the law described. But I am living for that type and that shadow. That shadow was basically talking about being holy, being pure, not compromising, not putting anything else in there, but just being 100% whatever you do. I believe that that's what that Old Testament law was typical of. And see, I'm now fulfilling that. So I, if you are being led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are fulfilling the righteousness of the law, and we are not under the law. In verse 19, 20, and 21, Paul here begins to list what are the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh here are just basically... Uh, describing different ways that the flesh or this old carnal self manifests itself. And he's doing this for the purpose of identification. Verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. The word manifest here literally means evident, plainly recognized or known. And then he begins to list them. Basically, uh, you can sum this up into kind of four categories. The first category is talking about sensual uh, things, such as fornication here is what he's talking about when he mentions adultery, fornication. This also would be descriptive of prostitution. When it says uncleanness, uh, Bob Yandian has a teaching out on this, and he's researched this and gone back into the Greek and done a number of things, but he believes that uncleanness here is including homosexuality. He's got a book out entitled, Did Jesus Ever Meet a Homosexual? And he says that, yes, he did, that that's what this word unclean is. When it talks about an unclean spirit, it's always referring to some deviant sexual 
uh, behavior, predominantly homosexuality. So anyway, this is talking about uh, sensual, sexual types of sins. Adultery, fornication, prostitution, uncleanness, I believe, including all types of moral uh, impurity, homosexuality, etc., lasciviousness, uh, promiscuity, such as premarital, extramarital sexual relationships, etc. And then the second thing is talking about false worship. He mentions uh, idolatry, witchcraft, and I believe that this witchcraft is uh, similar to sorcery. could include all kinds of occultish-type practices. And then he talks about personal and social relationships when he talks about hatred and variance. Uh, these words, I've got references on each one of these that go into much more detail, and I encourage you to look through them because I'm not going to take time. But here when he's talking about variance, this is talking about strife, uh, rival- rivalry, Discord. The word emulations here means jealousies of an unnatural kind. In other words, I believe that God himself is a jealous God, but it certainly is not unnatural. It is not excessive. It is not without reason, uh, etc. This is talking about uh, something that is totally out of order here. That's a work of the flesh. When it mentions wrath, Of course, that's pretty evident. The word strife here means factions, divisions within the body, etc. The word seditions is speaking of divisions among individuals and within married couples. That's what that word seditions means. Uh, The word heresies, uh, of course, is referring to people that have doctrinal teachings. And, of course, it's not minor doctrinal things, but things that come at the very core of Christianity, such as talking about the deity of Christ Uh, heresies would refer to the Jehovah Witness and Mormons because both of them discount the deity of the Lord Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses just flat out claim that uh, Jesus is not God. The Mormons will say Jesus is God, but their concept of God is nothing but an exalted man. They don't have the concept of an eternal father. And so those are heresies. Uh, The word envyings, of course, is talking about uh, being jealous and... uh, desiring things of other people. You could put covetousness in here, I believe. And so these are all personal, social things uh, related to uh, relationships with other people. The fourth category here is talking about such things as temperance. And it mentions here uh, drunkenness and revelings. And the word revelings here is referring to things like orgies, the the drunken brawls, parties, the excess, and things that you see. So anyway, he's listing here all of these things, these four different categories, sensual or sexual things, false worship, personal, social relationships, and then temperance areas. And all of these areas, these are things that indicate whether a person is being led by the Spirit of God or whether they are being led by the flesh, And he goes on to say at the end of this verse, he says, Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is somewhat of a problematic scripture, because if you take it in its context, if you look at the entire book of Galatians, the whole point that he's making is, he's preaching against the people who say that you must do certain acts of holiness before you can be accepted with God. And he's saying, no, it's just by grace 
and your faith in God's grace that produces salvation. And then acts of holiness follow. So that's the whole point that he's making. And then he makes this statement that if you're doing these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Some people take this and interpret it to say that any person who commits any of these areas that are called works of the flesh are not born again, or if they were born again, they lose their salvation when they do that. Well, see, that's exactly opposite the whole point that this book is making. I just don't believe that. Plus, there are so many other passages of Scripture that go against this. There's a number of ways to approach that. I can guarantee you that every person listening to this tape, to some degree or another, is participating in one of these things called the work of the flesh. Notice here that he's talking about hatred, variance, which is just marital problems, uh, emulations, wrath, strife. Man, have any of us ever done these things? Does this mean that anybody who has done these things cannot or will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, certainly not. I don't believe that that's what it's talking about. There's a parallel passage of Scripture to this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. See, here's this same phrase again. And it says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you are washed but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I encourage you to look at that note I've got at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and to get more detail on this. But he just mentioned all of these things, and some of these people in the book of Corinth, I mean in the, in the Corinth church that he wrote this book of Corinthians to, they were committing some of these things. Matter of fact, he talked about them being drunkards at the... At the uh, um, what do you call that? The Lord's Supper, communion table. They were actually drinking themselves drunk. And so he listed being a drunkard here, and he says, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he turns right around and says, such were some of you. So out of all of these things, I believe that you can say that even though a Christian may do some of these things, have some of these works of the flesh in them, that is not disqualifying them from being a Christian. This is just basically saying that these are characteristics of the flesh. They are not what the Spirit of God produces. A person who has these characteristics in their life, in those areas, they are not being led of God. And if a person is totally, if there is no area of their life they're being led of God, if they have nothing good, well, then they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But just because a person does one of these things spasmodically does not disqualify them, I don't believe, from being a Christian. In contrast, in the very next few verses, he lists the fruit of the Spirit. Well, there are some people who are not Christians that have some of these fruit of the Spirit. They are they have love or joy or peace or a pseudo those things. They at least are gentle and kind to some people, and yet does that make them born again? I don't believe that good works make a person born again, and I don't believe that bad works make a born-again person lose their salvation. But it is true that a person, whether they are saved or unsaved, who are, who are walking in these things listed here in verses 19, 20, and 21, then that person is not being controlled 
by the Spirit. They are walking in the flesh, and that's the point that Paul is making. He had just told them in previous verses, don't use this liberty that I've been preaching as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. If you give place to this, you're liable to be devoured if you start getting into the flesh. So he's warned them against it. He says, don't walk in the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So now... Uh, He's basically saying, here's these things of the flesh that the Holy Spirit will help you avoid. He will break the dominion of these things in your life, and he listed them. But this is not saying that any person who does any of these things is reprobate, damned, or unable to receive salvation. I believe that if a person had every one of these characteristics in their life, there would be a very, very good chance that they are not truly born again because as you are in the spirit, it will begin to break the dominion of the flesh. But a person who has just a few of these things manifest in their life, man, I don't believe that that disqualifies you. You could look at this as those that do such things. In other words, you could say those who are, you know, that this is totally characteristic of their life. I think you got a very good chance of saying that they are not born again. A person who just does some of these things accidentally, uh, seldom, Uh, that certainly is not disqualifying them from being born again. In verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he lists nine things. But notice that he said the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You know, I believe that just as light has all of these different colors in it. You know, the purples and the yellows and the reds, all of these different colors are in light, but you can't normally see it. I believe that that's the way it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God doesn't just produce in some people, maybe love and then other people peace or in other people faith, etc. But when the Spirit comes into a person's life, it's just like light. It has all of these different colors of the spectrum in it. And in the same way that a prism can separate light into these different colors, well, the Spirit of God, for the purpose of identification and teaching right here, we can say that it produces these nine things. But the truth is, he doesn't just produce one of them or some of them in a person's life. When the Spirit is in a person's life and controlling a person's life, here is what the Spirit of God is bringing into a person's life. Now, in verse 22, the word Spirit here is capitalized. And there are some people that make quite an issue out of this and say that in the Greek there are no such thing as capital letters and lowercase letters, that that's only an English thing and so that this has no relevance, that this does not necessarily specify the Holy Spirit. But there are other references, such as over in the book of... um, Titus and other places where it talks about our Savior and it makes a point of capitalizing that. And um, even though there, I admit that there in the Greek there is no um, capital letter equivalent, I will say this, that the context of the Greek, and anybody who's studied any of this knows that one word can mean a totally different thing depending on the context that it finds itself in. So in the Greek language, context has an influence on the way that a person reads it. And so even though I don't believe that Greek has capital letters and lower case levels, there is an equivalent of that in the Greek. The context bears it out. So what I'm saying here is I do not believe that uh, having spirit here capitalized is insignificant. I believe that this is specifying 
that this is what the Holy Spirit produces in a person's life. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But then again, now all of that being said, I believe that this is also true of every born-again spirit because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. That means we've been united with him. And so what is ever true of the Holy Spirit is also true of my born-again spirit. They are identical in their nature and in their character. So for practical purposes, it doesn't really matter whether you say this is the Holy Spirit or your born-again spirit that is producing these things uh, because they both are identical. But in this instance, I believe that it is specifying that this is what the Holy Spirit produces. And notice that it produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, we could literally stop here and minister for hours and hours and hours on each one of this fruit of the Spirit. I I just hadn't got time to do that. I don't believe that that would be productive. I've got tapes on love, on joy, on peace, on faith, on all of these things. And so for further study, you can go to those sources. But let me just mention this, that I do not believe that the Holy Spirit only produces these things at times. For instance, somebody may be looking at this and saying, well, the Holy Spirit produces love. Well, that's good, but right now I sure don't have any of it. The Holy Spirit isn't producing it in my life because all I feel is hatred. Well, I believe that the truth to this is that in your spirit, the part of you that is born again, the Holy Spirit is always, always, always releasing love in your life. Now, you are not only a spirit. You have a soul and a body. That soul is that mental, that emotional, that personality part of you. And you can let your soul dominate you and control you to such a degree that you literally become oblivious to the spiritual realm. You get to where the spiritual realm doesn't have any effect upon you. You're impervious to it. And when that happens, you might say, well, I don't have any love, but this scripture is saying that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If you have received the Spirit, you always, always have that love there. It's not a matter of going and getting love. You've already got it. It calls it the fruit of the Spirit, the product of the Spirit. You could say the produce of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't just produce, you know, at certain times. There isn't a dormant season. There isn't a winter season where the Spirit isn't releasing these things. Every born-again Christian who has received the Spirit of God has love 24 hours a day, every day of their life in their spirit. And if you're feeling something contrary to that, well, then all that means is that you are out in the flesh. You aren't in the Spirit because the Spirit is always producing that. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you can just ignore the flesh. You've got a soul and a body that you cannot be delivered of until the Lord comes back or until you die to go be with him. And so I'm saying that you might feel that temptation to be angry and bitter. You might get your feelings hurt, but you always have this reservoir of love on the inside that you can draw on. You always have joy. Boy, this is powerful, and God has really used this in my life, and I've referred to this already a number of times, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is a powerful truth. People are depressed and discouraged, even Christian people, and they come to me and say, what's happening, and how come I prayed and the Lord isn't giving me joy? The Bible says here that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. It's always there. You've already got joy. It's actually the wrong 
way to approach God, to start praying for joy. The truth is you've already got it. The proper way, when you're feeling discouraged and something has come against you, is to say, Father, my emotions are not the absolute truth. I know that your word says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Your Holy Spirit within me, my born-again spirit, does have joy. I know I've got it because your word says it. But then you could just be honest and say, but Lord, I don't feel it. For some reason, my emotions are not experiencing the benefits of my salvation. And so you ask the Lord for wisdom. Is there something that you are doing? Have you not spent any time fellowshipping with the Lord? Have you not spent any time seeking the Lord? Are you harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart that's allowing Satan to come in and steal, kill, and destroy what God has already placed in your spirit? And if the Lord shows you something specific, then renounce it, reject it, turn from it, and yield yourself back unto the power of the Holy Spirit, and that love, joy, and peace will start flowing again. But if you don't know of anything specifically, sometimes it could just be the devil flat attacking you. It's irrational. There is no reason for it. It's just an unrenewed mind. And in those instances, just go to rejoicing and by faith releasing what's on the inside. I think I've used this example before, but it's just like a well on the inside of every person. A well has that clean, pure water flowing through there. You know, if it was a hot day and you needed a drink, it would be wonderful to find a well, but it wouldn't do you any good unless you could put a bucket or something down into there and draw that out. Well, that's the way it is. You always have this joy and this peace on the inside of you, but you've got to draw it out. How do you draw it out? Well, instead of responding to your senses and your emotions and letting them dominate you, what somebody has said about you are your circumstances that are negative. Instead of responding to those, you just start responding in faith to what God's Word says. God's Word says you have love, joy. When a person hates you and spits in your face and slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other and you start choosing to love that person. You start saying, Father, I thank you that I've got love in my heart for this person. I draw on it. I speak it. I resist these negative thoughts. I cast my care over on you. And you just by faith start loving that person. Some people think that's hypocritical. I don't. I think that it's actually hypocritical to let your emotions dominate you when God says on the inside you've got love, joy, and peace, etc. So, see, you need to recognize that you do have these things, and you start by faith responding. That's like sticking that bucket down into that well, and as you do it and continue to praise God when you don't feel like it, eventually that life that was on the inside, this joy that was already there, begins to start flowing. Man, I've given a lot of examples on this previously that would really fit here, but I just encourage you to go back and study that. I've got a lot of teaching. On this subject, I've got two tapes entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body, Parts 1 and 2 that would really deal with this and answer a lot of questions. i got tapes on righteousness that talk about this. One entitled Identity in Christ that's a part of our Harnessing Your Emotions series. I've got that three tapes on emotions, and those would all deal with this. But it's just powerful. You always have peace on the inside of you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the Bible says in Colossians 3.15 to let the peace of God rule in your heart. You know, there are times that you may feel no peace. Maybe you feel total fear, etc. But this scripture says that in your spirit there is peace. And so in any situation, all you have to do is calm yourself. 
And to do that, it may take withdrawing from your normal circumstances. It may take shutting off the TV, separating yourself from the sources of unbelief and fear around you. Maybe fasting and praying, getting in the presence of God. But whatever you've got to do, you calm yourself. You put your mind upon the Lord, and you'll find out that you always have peace in your heart. And then Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. That means umpire. Let it choose. Make the choices for you. If you're looking at decisions that you have to make and you're in turmoil and you seem under pressure, what you do is separate yourself, focus your attention on the Lord, and then go back, look at your options in whichever direction you feel the most peace about you follow that. And that is following the leadership of the Lord. Regardless of what you think, you always have peace in your heart. That's true of every one of this fruit of the Spirit. It also says that you have long-suffering. Boy, you need to spend time with each one of these things listed here because there's a lot of people that think, man, I'm just so impatient. I don't have any ability for patience. This right here says that you have long-suffering. You can bear with things. You do have that ability. It's in your spirit, your born-again spirit. It also says that you have gentleness. You know, I prayed with a man just last week, and he was frustrated that he wasn't in the ministry, and I didn't know this man. I was speaking by the Spirit of the Lord. But God showed me some things, and this man was humble enough to receive it. And part of what I told him was that it was mercy that God hadn't opened up the ministry to him because there was just things that weren't ready yet for ministry. And I said, part of it is you are a mean person. And I said this in a polite way, and he received it that way. I wasn't saying it to be critical, but I just said that you've been hurt a lot. There's been a lot of rejection, and the way that you've responded to it is you've become tough. You've become mean so that nothing can penetrate you. And I said, right now, if the Lord was to open up the ministry, you would take the Word of God like a club and beat people with it. There wouldn't be any gentleness, any grace in what you're teaching. And this guy began to cry, and he says, boy, that's exactly right. And I said, see, God's just working on you. And as soon as he gets you to where you're manifesting some of these things, then he'll open up more doors. Well, see, in a situation like that, for a person like that, there is this gentleness that's already in him. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And he may not recognize it. He may have built these defenses uh, of meanness and anger and being tough and macho and stuff. But the truth is, in his heart, there is a gentleness that comes through Christ. It also says that there's goodness there. Those people that feel like, well, I'd like to be different, but this is just the way I am. Well, you need to find your new identity in Christ, because in Christ you do have gentleness, and you do have goodness. And the next thing it says here in verse 22, it says that you have faith. And boy, I hadn't got time to go into this. I could teach on this a long time. But most people let the devil teach them or talk them out of their faith. They believe that faith works. They would believe and rejoice at testimonies I give about what faith would do and how it set people free. But the problem is they say, well, I know faith works. I just don't have enough faith. I don't have any faith. I feel like my faith is gone. This is saying that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. It's always there. You have faith. I've got a tape entitled The Faith of God, an hour and a half teaching that will go into in-depth on this and show that every born-again believer has the exact same measure of faith that Jesus had. You've got faith. Faith is not the problem. It's a matter of knowing how faith works. Faith is governed by law out of Romans chapter 3, verse 27. You've got to renew your mind to learn how faith works. It's just like electricity. 
Electricity works, but you've got to know how it works. And if you don't, then you've got to have an electrician or somebody that does. To have electricity work properly, you've got to learn the laws and you've got to cooperate with them. It's the same with faith. You do have faith. Don't let the devil tell you you don't have faith. You do. You just need to get it out of your spirit and through your mind into your physical body. And that takes a renewing of the mind to make that happen. goes on to say, still talking about the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 23, it says that you have meekness, temperance. Boy, that's important because I meet so many people today that are struggling with habits. Sometimes it's just uh, eating habits, uh, maybe uh, bad habits concerning study that people are lazy. Uh, They uh, put things off, they procrastinate, or it could be more deadly things such as sexual addictions and and, uh, cocaine addictions and alcohol addictions and stuff like that. And they just don't feel that they have the ability of self-control, the ability to do anything. This says that every born-again person has the Spirit of God in their life, has temperance. That's self-control is what that's talking about. It's there. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And just like anything else, it can be appropriated and released. So after it lists these nine things, it says, Against such there is no law. Once again, just stating that if a person was operating in love, what law could they break if they really operate in love towards God and towards their fellow man? Jesus himself said that this is what all of the law and the prophets was about. You just love God and love your fellow man, and you fulfill the law. So basically, if a person is led of the Spirit, what purpose is there for a law in their life? A person can obtain to all of the righteousness of the Old Testament law without having to observe the do's and the don'ts. If they would just let the Spirit of God have his way and begin to be led by the Spirit, they would fulfill the law, the righteousness of the law, more accidentally than they ever have on purpose before. Holiness comes as a fruit and not a root of salvation. In verse 24, it says, And they that are Christ, that's apostrophe est, in other words, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. And this is something, again, that I've dealt with in many places as we've talked about denying self and crucifying self and things like this. Notice that this is talking about a past tense thing. This is not talking about a person who is constantly going around denying themselves, crucifying themselves daily. There is a partial truth there, but I have seen a lot of religious people that in an effort to overcome self, they become so self-centered that it actually is a detrimental thing. You just need to recognize that when you got born again, you did die with Christ. Romans chapter 6 says a lot about this, and of course we've already covered those scriptures. You could go back and study that. But it's a done deal. It's just something to appropriate. When it comes to something, you know, really coming against you and tempting you, these are very powerful scriptures to just go back and say, no, I've already died to that through Christ. I'm not going to go into it again. I am dead to this. You have no power, no authority, no dominion in my life. And reminding yourself of that will help you to break the affections and the lust of the flesh. In verse 25, he says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And this is going back to the same terminology that Paul used in Romans chapter 8. I refer you back to those passages of Scripture. I hadn't got time to go back over there. But when you get born again, you are in the Spirit. Now, whether you walk after the Spirit, that in other words, you the word in is referring to a fixed position 
in time. When a person gets born again, they are considered by God to be in the Spirit. But then in Romans chapter 8, it makes a distinction between being in the Spirit and after the Spirit. A person can be born again and technically in the Spirit, and yet, because of an unrenewed mind, they can walk after the flesh. A born-again person can be dominated and controlled by the flesh. That would be called walking after the flesh. Paul here is saying that if you're living in the Spirit, which is true if you're born again, well, then walk in the Spirit. In other words, let the full benefit of it happen. Don't let the works of the flesh that he had listed here dominate us, but instead let the Spirit man dominate us. By him commanding us to do this, that means that we do have the power, we do have the choice. There are some people that think that's that's uh, unobtainable, that you cannot really overcome the things of the flesh. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. He says that we've already been crucified with the affections and lust of our flesh, and since we live in the Spirit, we just need to draw on it and walk in the Spirit. Verse 26, he says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. And I believe that this is basically descriptive. You could sum up all of those things that he listed as works of the flesh in that verse 26. Works of the flesh are vain glory. It deals with relationships where you provoke one another, you envy one another, and the end result is death instead of the blessing of God. Continuing on into chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now these are kind of closing down. He's already made his point here in the book of Galatians. He's already uh, talked about grace and then countered it with saying, but this does not give you just a license to go out and do anything. If you do that, you could be devoured of one another. He listed what walking in the flesh is like versus walking in the spirit. Now these are just kind of closing salutations, things, incidental things that needed to be dealt with. They're all important, but they may not be critical to the point about grace that he had been teaching. In verse 1, he says, when he, when he said that a man, if he's overtaken in a fault, I want you to look at some of these words. In the Greek, the word overtaken uh, carried the idea of something that came upon a person by surprise. If... Uh, you look in the dictionary, that means to come upon unexpectedly, taken by surprise. Also, the word fault that's used right here, this means a side slip, lapse, or deviation. That is, an unintentional error or willful transgression. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out is to say that when it's talking about restoring someone here, this is talking about a person who has simply made a mistake, not a person that is in total rebellion towards God. Now, it could be debated that any person who sins is a person who willfully sinned because it just can't happen without our cooperation. Sin doesn't come upon us like a seizure. It has to be conceived. And I'll concede that, that that is a true statement. But I do believe that there are some people that Satan actually deceived them as he did Eve. And he gradually walked them away from it, and they just were overtaken in a fault. It was with their cooperation. I'm not saying that they didn't have any responsibility or guilt in the situation, but really you can tell by their response that they're heartbroken, not just at being caught, but in the fact that they failed the Lord, uh, that they uh, failed the people and other things. You know, specifically, I think here about ministers. I've got a minister right now that I'm in the process of helping restore from some sexual things. And there has, in my estimation, been true repentance 
that he's taken some knocks and I mean the guy's just as guilty as he can be but he's become completely clear and he's acknowledged that it you know there were reasons why it happened it was not totally that he went into this thing blind he even tried to deceive people for a period of time but once it finally all came out in the open uh, he has totally repented and I believe that it's very similar to what Paul is describing here. He was overtaken in this fault. He really didn't realize what was going on. He just had, you know, become lukewarm in his commitment to the Lord. He had allowed the devil to come in, and because of it, um, he was overtaken in a fault. This guy had has truly repented and shown his remorse and is on his way to recovery, and I believe that he's doing great. But this is the type of person that he's describing here. There are some people that have just become reprobate, and Paul dealt with them differently, such as over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, who he'd turned over to Satan. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talked about that man that he had turned over to Satan who committed incest. And so there are some that I mean are just violent and totally rebellious. This is describing a person who, even regardless of how severe it may have been, was really under deception and allowed Satan just to kind of draw them into this thing. And those are the type of people that we need to restore. And so he said, for those type of people, you which are spiritual, that is describing the people that he just had talked about in the previous verses, those who are being led by the Spirit, those who have the fruit of love, joy, peace, etc. flowing in their life. Those are the type of people that they need to restore this brother or sister that was overtaken in a fault. You know, the word that was used for restore here is really interesting. It comes from a word that literally was describing setting a broken bone. And I got to meditating on this, and I believe that there are some really good analogies here that can actually provide us with some direction about how do you restore a person that has been overtaken in a fault, has been caught into some sin. Satan has snared them, and now they're repenting and they're wanting to get set free. How do you deal with that? Well, in the same way that, you know, broken bones take time to mend, I think that we need to recognize that when you are restoring someone who has been overtaken in a fault, that means that this isn't just something that they're being tempted with. They have already given into it. The damage has been done. In a situation like that, you need to recognize it. Just like it takes time for a bone to heal, it's going to take time for restoration. Specifically, I'm thinking of some instances where where leaders in churches have committed some type of sin. With the Lord, there is instantaneous forgiveness. But I do not believe there is instantaneous restoration. Just like a bone takes time to heal, I believe it's going to take time for that person in leadership, whether it's a minister or whoever, it's going to take time for them to overcome these things, to grow through it, and to put it behind them. Now, that could be debated. If I had more time, I think I could go into greater detail on that. But that has been my experience. And I believe that not only for the sake of the person who is being restored, but for the sake of the people who follow, there needs to be this restoration time where they prove to everybody, that the Lord really has done a work and that he has restored them. And so that's the first thing. You need to recognize that it takes time. Also, uh, a person that has a broken bone, you have to curtail their activities. It has to be restricted. Say, for instance, a person has a broken leg. 
Well, I guarantee you, you just can't go out and continue your jogging every day if you've got this broken leg. You're going to have to change your routine. A person that breaks a finger even, even if it's a type of a minor thing, it still is going to make a difference. Like, for instance, if it's on your writing hand, it could make a big difference in the way that you are able to function. And so there needs to be a change in your activity. Going back again to the spiritual application, I believe a person who's been overtaken in a fault, one of the things that needs to happen is they don't need to stay in that position of leadership. Now, I'm talking here about a leadership. I think that the same thing could apply on all kinds of levels. Say, for instance, a married partner had committed sin. They fell into adultery, and they've really repented of it. Now, how do you restore such a one? Well, first of all, you need to recognize it's going to take time. And there needs to be a change in their surroundings. There needs to be a change in their routine. Like, say, for instance, they committed adultery with somebody at work. Well, and the person at work hasn't come to you and they haven't repent. Maybe the temptation is still there. Maybe everybody in their company is going out and living in incest and adultery, and that's just a temptation that he's constantly around. I would say that there needs to be a change of surroundings. Boy, if, uh, if a person did that, say a man had committed adultery and he came to his wife, and if the wife forgave him, the man repented, they wanted to make the marriage work, and yet they didn't know exactly how to restore things, one of the first things I'd say is you need to get out of that situation. Some people could debate that and say, no, they need to be strong and stay right there and overcome it. Well, I believe that eventually that's true, but it's just like a person with a broken bone. Eventually, that thing will have to bear the full weight. But right when it's broken, it doesn't need any more injury. There needs to be a restriction of the use of that thing. And it's the same thing. Whatever the circumstances are that brought a person to this being overtaken in a fault, you need to change that situation. The chances are that if they continue in the same situation, they're going to continue to make the same wrong decisions. Whatever influences came upon them before, they're going to be more susceptible to that. It's like a person that's had a cold or something. Even though the cold may be over, their immune system is a little down, and they're going to be more susceptible to it for a period of time than somebody who is totally healthy. So I believe that there needs to be a change of surrounding, a change of routine. If it's a pastor of a church, I and I, this could be debated, but I really believe that a pastor of a church who has committed some type of sin, and I'm talking about something serious enough, like, say, for instance, adultery, I believe that they need to be removed from that position of leadership because they just cannot heal properly when they are still having all of the demands of the ministry upon them. I need to. I believe that they need to step down. They need to take a sabbatical. They need to come under the authority of someone else. And personally, I, this could be debated. So I've read one book where the people actually advocate that they stay exactly in that same church, face the music, hold themselves 100% accountable, face all of the rejection and everything that goes along with it. And I can understand the point that they're saying. There is some benefit to that. But at the same time, uh, it would depend on the situation. If it was truly a loving body of believers that wanted to restore the guy and help him, then yes, that might be so. But boy, uh, I tell you, Christians can be vicious. Christians are some of the few people that, you know, kill their own wounded. And uh, I just think that for some ministers, that might be more than they can tolerate. There needs to be a change. 
And whether that change is absolute to where you literally move out of town, where you remove yourself from the situation, I think it may vary. But in the same way that a broken bone restricts activities, I believe that a person who's been overtaken in a fault, there needs to be some changes in lifestyle, or I promise you that same thing's going to come back on them. If it's a sexual sin, one of the things that needs to happen, they need to quit watching the things, reading the books, exposing themselves to the things that produce that. That ought to be at least the minimum lifestyle change. And if at all possible, they need to remove themselves from situations where they're being tempted. Also, you know, just like a broken bone needs to be set, and when you do that, there's tremendous pain. Usually when you break a bone, the last thing you want to do is to have somebody touch it and yank that thing and set it. But if you don't set it properly, it'll never grow back properly. And in the same way, a person who's been overtaken in a fault, one of the last things they want to do is really face the music. They really do not want to confront it. They don't want to tell. They just want to get it over and behind themselves and get this thing healed. But I believe that even though it's painful to face it, boy, they need to become totally clear. I was involved in restoring a pastor who had committed adultery, and uh, I went into the church and they were keeping it a secret from the congregation. Basically, everybody had figured it out. And I told them, that I said, gossip is always more vicious than the truth. I said, I believe that we need to become totally honest. And the person, the pastor that was involved gave me permission to do that. And so I just came clean with the people. I didn't give any details that didn't need to be done. I didn't implicate anybody other than the pastor. He was the one that was uh, repentant and being restored. But, uh, you know... With tactfulness, we became as honest and open as we possibly could. I believe that that's facing the situation. It's like taking that broken bone and, even though it's painful, pushing it back into position. You endure pain for a moment, but once that's over, then you can set the thing and it begins to heal. A person who uh, moves on and isn't honest and doesn't face exactly what's happened, I don't believe that they've ever really set that bone. It's They aren't being properly restored. And as a result, it will eventually harden, and it will grow back, and they can go back, and they can function once again, but there will always be this dark part of their life that they haven't dealt with. I don't believe that that's the way that it should be. In the same way as you have to set a bone, even though it's painful, you do it. I believe that even though there's painfulness in facing the music, becoming honest, telling people what happened, uh, bearing the responsibility for it, you need to do that when you're being restored. Another thing is that, uh, you know, when a person breaks a bone, they put it in a cast. And the purpose of this cast is to surround that part that has been injured and to protect it from any more injury, from anything that would aggravate it. And I believe that this is another part of restoration, that the cast in the spiritual realm is that that person who's being restored needs to submit themselves to somebody in spiritual authority. They need to become accountable to them. They need to start meeting with them on a regular basis and basically have somebody else outside police their life. Now, I'm not talking about this to the extreme, to where that person has no accountability, but I'm saying they just need to be overseen. Somebody needs to be overseeing the situation. Somebody who is spiritual. Somebody who has dealt with this before and can help them through it. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I believe most of them really are obvious, but I believe that... Uh, that's in the same way that a cast protects a broken bone in the physical. I believe that brothers and sisters, somebody that that person submits themselves and become accountable to, basically forms a 
protective coating around them and keeps them from going back into situations and things that would aggravate and hinder this. That restoration process uh, takes time. And until that healing is complete, you just have to remain in that cast. It becomes something that you hate. It becomes hot, itchy. You want to do things. It becomes uncomfortable. People, I'm sure, think about cutting the cast off, but you just have to keep it on. A premature cutting off of the cast and putting weight back on those things and beginning to use that bone can destroy the whole thing and actually keep it from ever totally healing. Well, it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. I know that it's uncomfortable when somebody's done things, and man, that you want to get out of it and think, I've done my due, and and we need to get on with this, and time's up. But I believe that, boy, that you can come out of this prematurely and do a lot of damage. And so you need to submit until the doctor tells you it's time to take the cast off. And then you may have to tentatively try some things and not go back to just full 100%. Well, whoever you make yourself accountable to in this restoration process, they really need to be the one to help ease you back into a position of leadership or ease you back into the relationship or whatever it is that you're dealing with. If you try to return to normal prematurely, it'll prevent you from ever being completely healed. Boy, those are some powerful things there. I believe that that's really good. That's what that word restore means, just like you set a bone. And notice it also says that the way you do this, the person who's doing the restoration, you have to do it in a spirit of meekness. In other words, you don't need to do it haughtily. I believe that there was a teaching that went through the body of Christ back in the 70s about authority, submission. They called it the shepherding uh, doctrine. And in some of those situations, there was a meanness, there was an arrogance that pervaded it that I believe was one of the mistakes that actually brought this down. There were some godly principles and some truths in that. But this arrogance and the authoritative, the dictatorial type of attitude to where, hey, I'm your authority, you do what I tell you, and they controlled and dominated people. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about doing it in a spirit of meekness. Again, you know, I can go back to my personal experience of dealing with people who have sinned, ministers and restoration. Man, I go to them, and I'm not here to say, you sorry thing. Boy, you submit to me. It's not like that. I really treat that person as an equal, and I've gone to them and told them, hey, but by the grace of God, you know, some of these things could have happened to me. If I would have made the wrong choices that you made and allowed myself to start flirting in certain areas and allow myself to get away from the Word of God in relationship with God, the same thing could have happened to me. It could have happened to anybody. See, I believe that that's having a spirit of meekness, and it says considering yourself lest you also be tempted. In other words, you need to recognize that, hey, you are not above temptation yourself. Don't go in and lord it over somebody. Go in with compassion. Go in with some sympathy. If you're going to restore a person that has been overtaken in a fault, a person that's not just 100% rebellious and, I mean, doing things intentionally, but a person who has been overtaken in a fault, they're now repentant and they're looking for help and they're saying, help me. Go in with a humble attitude, remembering that, hey, you can also be tempted and you might need some of the mercy that uh, you are extending towards this person. Someday you may need it yourself. You know, when a person is merciful, the scripture says in James chapter 2, you get shown mercy. But when you show no mercy, you are shown no mercy. And you can see examples of this. I mean, some 
famous examples in our day, people on television who ranted and raved, raved against sexual sins, homosexuality, and I mean mad and screaming and yelling red in the face, and then they were caught in the very same things. And I guarantee you, people showed them no mercy because they had shown no mercy. On the other hand, you find a person who's compassionate, and people are a lot easier upon them. Going on to verse 2, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This word burden here comes from a Greek word, which means a heavy weight, burden, or trouble. Trouble. It is such a heavy weight that if a person is not helped carrying it, he will be overwhelmed. And so this could either be talking about a person who's under a sin, having some burden in their life, or it just could be talking about circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances come against us. And, of course, the whole teaching of Jesus was to love others more than you love yourself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So this is basically just talking about foundational Christian doctrine, loving one another. And I believe it follows along with this person who's overtaken in a fault, restoring one. Well, helping bear their burden is part of fulfilling the law of Christ. In verse 3 it says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, I believe that this is still talking about that restoration process. As a matter of fact, the Amplified Bible translates this third verse this way. It says, For if any person thinks himself to be somebody, in parentheses, too important to condescend to shoulder another's load, when he is nobody of superiority except in his own estimation, he deceives himself. So this is talking about still restoring a person and doing it with a meek attitude. You don't go in there and just blast them, but you help bear their burdens. You literally take the load on yourself and help them. And if you think you're too good to do that, if you think that you're too important to condescend to shoulder another's load, then you're just deceiving yourself. In verse 4 it says, But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another same point that the Lord Jesus was making over in Matthew chapter 7 verses 3 through 5 when he was talking about that, you know, if somebody has something wrong with them and you go to them and you try and uh, correct them, it's like trying to cast a little tiny speck out of their eye when you have this huge beam sticking out of your own eye. And Jesus said, first, take the beam out of your eye and then you'll see clearly how to deal with someone else. Well, see, it's the same thing he's talking about right here. And basically, he's just saying that, first of all, make sure your own works are straightened out. This is still that spirit of meekness, recognizing, hey, you can also be tempted. Don't go in there acting like, hey, I'm not the one that sinned. I don't have any problems. You need to examine your own self and make sure that you're straight so that, you know, you will be able to help the other brother. That's what verse 4 is talking about. And then in verse 5, he says, for every man shall bear his own burden. You know, this sounds like the exact opposite of verse 2. In verse 2, he said, bear ye one another burdens. In verse 5, he says, for every man shall bear his own burden. Sounds like a contradiction, but I believe what he's talking about is that we should help other people bear their burdens because there will come a time that you will bear your own burden and you will need help from someone else. In other words, he's just bringing this up to say, hey, every one of us has our own burdens. We all bear our own things, and so we need to sow a little bit of mercy and grace into someone else's life against our own needs in the future. If you never experienced it here on this earth, I can guarantee you someday you're going to stand before the Lord, and you're going to have some things that you're going to need some mercy on. So you need to sow some mercy into someone else's life. 
And I believe that that's what that's talking about. That's a very powerful passage of Scripture. In verse 6, he says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. And I could spend a lot of time on this. I've already dealt with this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and other places. But basically, this is talking about giving financially to the person who is teaching you the word of God. This is a cardinal law of God. And, you know, this is really interesting because in the Old Testament days, they didn't have offerings the way that we have in the New Testament. I think a lot of people have missed this point. In the Old Testament, voluntary giving was really a thing that many generations never experienced. There are a few instances of it in the Old Testament, but basically, see, they had a tax that was placed upon them for the temple and the support of things. Through the sacrifices that they had to offer, that's how the priests were sustained. They ate of these sacrifices, etc. And so really, there were not free will offerings the way we see in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, this is the way that the Lord proposed that things be done. He said, let him that is taught in the word communicate. And that word communicate there is talking about giving back. And in context, you can see it's talking about financially unto him that teacheth in all good things. It's not limited to finances, but it certainly includes that. And so this is just a law of God that you need to minister to the people who are ministering to you. And I've got a lot of material on this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'd encourage you to go back through those verses and read that because I go into a lot of detail talking about that that I won't cover here. But, you know, if people would follow this instruction right here and give where they're fed, not where they're begged, not where they are condemned, not where they are made to feel guilty if they don't give, if people would give where they were fed, it would accomplish a number of things. One of them is that only those who are feeding the body of Christ would be getting the money. You would eliminate the charlatans. Charlatans may look good. They may have charisma and fancy television radio shows. They may have all of the glitz and the glamour. But the bottom line is they aren't going to have the Spirit of God flowing through them, and they aren't really going to be feeding the body of Christ. And so if you would only give where you're fed, not where you're manipulated and begged, not where you have some special offer that you want to buy and you're justifying that as you're giving, if you would give where you are fed, then you would eliminate the charlatans. Now that is a powerful, powerful truth. And if all of the money in the body of Christ that's flowing and being given in offerings was eliminated from the charlatans and went to the people who were truly feeding the body of Christ, then those who were feeding the body of Christ would flourish as never before. It's just a simple principle. If you go eat at McDonald's, you don't go across the street and pay Wendy's for the meal you got. You pay where you got fed. There's a lot of people aren't doing that. There's people that are giving money into dead churches, thinking I've got to bring my money into the storehouse, into this church. And, man, I hadn't got time to explain this. Somebody may take offense over this. I've got a tape entitled The Tithe that will go into this. You can request it free of charge. But uh, there are churches that are not worthy of your tithe. You need to give where you are being fed. You should be fed in your local church. But if you aren't, then don't give to it. Give where the Word of God is coming to you and where you're being fed. And notice the next verse. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. 
Now, again, he's saying this in conjunction with giving unto those who have taught you the word of God. And he says, don't be deceived. In other words, here's God's principle. You support. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to support the Levite. And it says, make sure that you do not forget the Levite all of the days of your life. The Levite was the Old Testament minister. Well, in the New Testament, here is the New Testament instruction. When you get taught the word of God, give to those that have taught you. And then he says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. I believe that he's saying this for the benefit of the minister, to encourage the minister that, hey, when you're really feeding the people, don't be deceived. Don't be discouraged. You may go through some hard times, but God's will is for you to be fed, and God will get it to you. And I can tell you that God has been faithful. God has sustained me. I sometimes don't use the wisdom that I should, but God sustains me. I take this scripture as encouragement to me. But it's also a warning to people who are not giving where they're fed. It says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. If you are not sowing into the people's lives that are feeding you the word of God, then you are not going to reap someday. People disagree with that and say, it doesn't matter where I give, it's just if I give. God knows my heart. Well, you know, that kind of attitude would make a sorry farmer. If a farmer thought, well, if I throw my seed here on this concrete, and it ought to produce just the same as if I put it in good ground and water it and fertilize it. I mean, after all, I sowed the seed. That's only what's important. Well, see, that's not so. You've you got to recognize where you give is important. And the Lord specifically said, give where you were taught. There are very few people that do that. Most people in the body of Christ today give where they are pressured, where they are begged. And I, I tell you, I can say this with authority because I give our materials freely. And even though God meets our needs, and I am not saying this for ulterior motives. Somebody might think that, well, that's uh, you're going to have to just deal with that between you and God. I'm teaching this because it's just a part of the Word just like anything else. I'm not saying this for personal reasons, but I have personally observed that because I make things available to people free of charge, that there are some people that take advantage of that and don't ever give back to us. And there's some people that can't give, and that's no problem. But there are a lot of people who can give, and they just choose not to give because I haven't pressured them. They aren't used to giving where they aren't pressured. I've actually had people tell me before and say, hey, I thought if you needed it, you'd have said something. Well, see, that's not right. The scripture here is saying, give where you're fed. I'm feeding a lot more people than are giving to me. Now, some people give to me over in abundance, and they make up. Altogether, I believe God is making it all work out. But I'm saying I know there's people that abuse the system. And it's not for my sake I'm saying this. I'm saying it for theirs. Someday, they're going to recognize that the reason they aren't reaping is because they haven't been sowing in the right place. They've been throwing their seed to people who are using gimmicks and begging them and pressuring them. They've been giving it to, uh, you know, pay million-dollar pipe organs and stained-glass windows instead of into the work of Christ. And they just can't understand what's happening. Well, it's because God isn't mocked. If they think that he is, then they're deceived. This is God's instructions. You need to follow God's instructions. When you are being fed spiritually, you need to sow a seed back there. You need to put finances back into that. He that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Well, we could go into a lot of detail on this, but let me just real quickly say that this is a law, and it applies to more than just the context that we're talking about here of giving to ministers. 
but it applies in everything. You know, if a person wants friends, the scripture says that to have friends, a man must show himself friendly. In other words, see, if you're praying and saying, oh, God, I need, I'm lonely and I need some companionship. I need a friend. God, could you send somebody my way? Well, instead of just praying and asking God to perform it as a miracle and drop it out of the sky, go sow friendliness into their life. Go give of yourself to somebody else, and then it will be given back to you. If you need more time, give some time to somebody. Give it to the Lord. Man, if you're too busy and don't have any time, just spend some time. Say, God, I'm giving you some time, and I believe that you're going to give me back some time and help me to do these things. You need to recognize this law of sowing and reaping. There are so many people that don't understand this, and they're just waiting on God to perform a miracle in their life, and yet they haven't sowed anything. There's people that are waiting on their ship to come in, and they never sent one out. You need to recognize that just as in the natural law, there are laws that govern sowing and reaping. You can't go out and reap a crop if you never sowed a crop. Well, in the spiritual realm, there are some people who are looking for financial blessing, and yet they aren't doing what God's Word says. They aren't giving. They aren't giving where they're being fed, and they just can't understand why God isn't meeting their financial needs. It's because God isn't mocked. God has said, do it this way, and if we do it our own way, we aren't going to get God's blessing and God's authority in our life on that. Well, this is so simple. You have to have somebody to misunderstand it. And yet, I guarantee you, most Christians are missing this. When it comes to healing, there's people that just pray for healing, not understanding that the Bible says that God sent his word and healed them. Psalms 107, verse 20. It also says that the word of God is health to all of your flesh and life to those that find it. In Proverbs chapter 4, God's word is like a seed. If you need a healing, take that healing seed, the word of God, and sow it into your life. Instead, people go their own way. They watch as the stomach turns on the television. They don't ever pay attention to the Word until they're already sick and in the hospital. And then they're going to believe God. They haven't sown any seed, and they just can't understand why things aren't working. That's just like a farmer that goes out here, and all of his friends are reaping their crops, and they go out, and they, they're upset because they don't have any crops. But they never sowed the seed. There is a seed to sow for any need in your life, not only financially, but emotionally, physically, relationship-wise. In any area of your life, you need to get hold of this principle that there is a seed time and harvest. You need to give. And when you are sowing to spiritual things, it doesn't matter what that is. If you are giving love to somebody, if you are walking in the Spirit and being led of God in love, joy, and peace, and you're sowing these things and giving that to others, you will reap back life everlasting. But if you are sowing to your flesh, you shall of the flesh reap corruption. This means that, man, if all you're doing is operating in selfishness, if you're operating in carnal things, if you're stingy, you are going to be treated stingily. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's the way it's going to be. You aren't going to get any back. And many people don't recognize this, and they're missing one of the most powerful laws in the Word of God. Now, this law is referred to a number of different times. Galatians, I mean, uh, uh, Luke chapter 6 talks about this. There's a lot of places that talk about this law of sowing and reaping. It's got a lot more detail. I've got a pretty detailed footnote here that I'd encourage you to go ahead and read. I just need to... Hurry on through this sixth chapter, but this is a powerful, powerful teaching. In verse 9, he says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. 
Again, this is talking about this law of sowing and reaping. Specifically, it's talking about finances, but it applies to everything. That just as a seed has to take time to germinate, it takes time for our seeds to produce. I actually one time gave $100 in an offering and expected to receive $10,000 in the mail the next day. And when I didn't get it, I was discouraged, and I got to praying about it. And the Lord showed me that just like you plant a seed, and it may take six months or a year before you see the harvest on that, it's the same thing. There is a due season. And he showed me I needed to start sowing in advance. And, you know, I believe that today, nearly 25 years later, I am still reaping a harvest off that $100 I gave 25 years ago. I mean, it's coming back unto me, and now I'm planting seeds for in the future. i got such a harvest out there that I mean my future looks wonderful. You need to develop that kind of attitude, knowing that there is a due season. But notice it says, if we faint not. And man, I hadn't got much time to go through this, but I've got some great footnotes here about fainting not and not being weary. The Bible says over in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Consider Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, lest you be weary and faint in your mind. The way you keep from fainting is in the mind. The battle has to be won in the mind. Sometimes people just go through the motions, the actions, and they think, well, that's good enough. No, you get weary and you faint in your mind. And this promise about reaping is dependent on not fainting. And so you've got to win the battle in the mind. You've got to keep your mind stayed on the Word of God. You've got to keep in faith. You cannot let fear and doubt begin to dominate you, and all of these things take place in the mind. You've got to control your thoughts, and you do that with the Word of God. In verse 10, he says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And, of course, you know, we could talk about this a long time, but doing good to people is is something that any Christian wants to do. And Jesus talked about, you know, helping your neighbor. He gave that example of the Good Samaritan, etc. But I believe that also sometimes Satan has twisted something like this to put condemnation and guilt on people. Because today, through television and radio, we can see what's happening on the other side of the world. We can see the starving babies. We can see the terrible things that are going on in all of these different places. And I've actually met Christians who were so overwhelmed because they were trying to do good unto people. And they just couldn't do everything. And they feel so stretched. They're so guilt-ridden. They're so sorry. They feel like they failed. I I want to call to your attention, he says, as you therefore have opportunity. He made a specific mention. He didn't just say, do good unto all men. If he had said that, that would have been a weight around our neck that would have drowned, drowned all of us. No, you can't do everything just as you have opportunity. When God puts you together with people supernaturally, well, then do what you have the resources to do and believe for more so that you can increase. But don't don't accept more responsibility than what God has put upon you. In verse 11 here, he says, You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. And I've made mention of this previous in in Galatians chapter 4, but some people use this to say that this is an indication that Paul had an eye disease that was his thorn in the flesh. I don't believe that that's what this is talking about. This letter to the Galatians is about five pages, single space, typewritten, and that's a long, large letter by anybody's standards. I don't believe it's talking about the individual letters in the words, but rather it's talking about a letter, the entire epistle that he wrote here. And this is not some indication that he had an eye problem. 
in verse 12, he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And here he's talking about his critics, these Judaizers, the legalists. And he says the reason they're forcing you is because they don't want to suffer persecution. They're trying to win over the favor of the Christian legalist in Jerusalem or possibly even the unsaved uh, Jews. They're trying to merge Christianity and Judaism into one faith, and it just cannot be done. There's a major difference there. And so their motivation for coming to the Galatians and preaching to them circumcision was so that they wouldn't suffer persecution. And Paul goes on to say in verse 13, he says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. This is interesting, that everybody who proclaims and promotes legalism and says, you've got to be holy, and if you aren't holy, God won't accept you, those very people don't live up to what they preach. They may, they may live up to a minimal standard, but they aren't holy, they aren't perfect. We dealt with this over in the third chapter of the book of Galatians. There's footnotes, and I mentioned that on the tape. But this is always characteristic of legalistic people. They are demanding of other people what they themselves can't do. You know, that's the height of hypocrisy. That's the height of, of ignorance. To You know, you can't live up to it. It's killing you, and yet you're going to demand it of other people. I tell you, that is a characteristic you'll see in legalists, and Paul here is pointing that out. They aren't doing the very things that they commanded you to do. They're just doing it so that they can glory in your flesh. You know, carnal, legalistic people always put the emphasis on the outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. When it's, when it's motivated by man, when it's just religion, it'll always be uh, concerned with outer things, doing but when it's from the heart of God, it'll be concerned with the inner things, the matters of the heart, rather than just outer formality. In verse 14, Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Well, that's a passage that to us we can just skip over. But to the Jewish mind that Paul was writing to, that was a radical heretic, uh, a statement of heresy that uh, I'm sure just blew a lot of people. But Paul made it very boldly. In verse 16, As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I believe that Paul basically had already made his point. He'd been harsh with it, tough with it at times, but just because he loved people, now he's coming to the close of this letter, and he's just basically saying, it's over. I'm through talking. I'm not debating this anymore. Don't let any man trouble me. No more debate, no more questions, no more comments about this. And then he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And, of course, he was talking about scars from persecution, uh, literally being stoned, beaten, uh, whipped, etc. But I believe that he's referring to a practice of their day, and it was in the Old Testament two different times where it talked about that if a slave did not want to go free and he just wanted to serve his master forever, that he could be brought to the door of the house and they could uh, pierce his ear through with an awl and they could make a mark in his flesh and he would be a bond slave forever. 
Well, I believe that Paul is referring to something like that, that he, through these marks, he had committed himself to a course of seeking God. He was committed to the grace of the Lord Jesus, and there was no turning back, no compromise, no more question. He had been marked for life, just like a slave was. And so that's what he's drawing on. And then in verse 18, he says, Brethren, here he had been harsh, critical, but yet he still acknowledges them as brethren. And he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So after all of these harsh things, he still loves these people, and he pronounces a blessing of, of the grace of the Lord Jesus upon them. 